0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart.
1: And welcome here back to the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as the uh, announcer uh, said, uh, you can find us over on Alexa now by saying "Tune in, uh, uh, Alexa, please play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn." Uh, today we are also live casting over at Facebook, Facebook.com/forward slash uh, Ted Hart. And uh, as always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news
0: you've been listening to the nonprofit coach podcast with Ted Hart tell all your friends hold to check on, out our
1: and let's make sure that uh, I get this uh, uh, put in uh, in place here so uh, if, uh, that's the way to start. thank you you <laughs> Just a little rusty here coming back uh, from our summer break, but we are back here uh, with a nonprofit coach, and we are live here with Ashley Gatewood, who is Communications and Marketing Manager uh, over at CFRE International. Uh, uh, Ashley, sorry for uh, that little uh, mix-up here in getting to page one news, but I know you've got an awful lot to share with us, so bring us up to date on everything that's happening at CFRE International.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program today. And it is a busy time for us. Today we released the names of the 206 new CFREs. So they're all people that became a CFRE in our most recent testing window. So massive congratulations to those 206 people who stepped up and made the commitment. Absolutely.
1: Congratulations, 206 new CFREs.
2: Yes, we're very excited. We also had, for the first time this year, new CFREs in Singapore, Israel, Germany, and Italy. So it's really wonderful to see people in other countries also put forward the commitment to professionalism and ethics in nonprofit fundraising. It's a very exciting time for us.
1: That's terrific. That's terrific.
2: Our next application deadline is October 1st. So just about two weeks away, and that is our final application deadline in 2019. It can be a really great time to submit your application if you have any professional development budget that's use or lose for 2019. So talk to your boss. We do have 52% of CFREs telling us that their boss contributes uh, funds towards part or all of that certification cost, so it's always worth having that conversation to see if you can get that support. And we have a new webinar that we're debuting on September 26th, and for your listeners in Australia, this will be of interest. It is for CFREs in Australia talking about their CFRE journey, how they got started, approached the application, studied, and all of that good stuff. And that's the, the top news from us at the minute.
1: That's terrific well so new webinar uh, the last deadline uh, for uh, for the year so as you said now is the time to get your applications together but also uh, potentially to uh, uh, get your budget uh, covered maybe by your boss uh, before year's end so good. Good timing uh, for everyone. Uh, so, uh, Ashley, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on uh, Cfr Inter- International, and we look forward to having you back here on the Nonprofit Coach. All
2: right. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, and take care.
1: You bet. And, of course, we have posted over at Facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, the CFRE International website. Uh, And now I want to draw your attention uh, to the link to the Nonprofit Coach chat room and group, the discussion group that we host over on LinkedIn. Uh, We now have, as of today, 3,077 members in the Nonprofit Coach People-to-People fundraising discussion group. So uh, if you've not already joined, please follow the link. Again, that's posted at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, join the discussion and all of the professionals uh, who share updates, information, education, uh, new uh, research. Um, and so that's what the uh, the discussion group is for, is to keep us all up to date on content and information in between nonprofit coach Live shows, and of course, you can always listen to all of the Nonprofit Coach uh, podcasts, of which there are now over 200 podcasts on various topics, uh, over at TedHart.com. So that's going to do it for page one news today um, because we want to save as much time as we can uh, for Alex Brophy, uh, who is going to be joining us right now over on page two. Now, Alex Brophy is not new here to the nonprofit coach. She has been with us twice before for important books that she has written about uh, success in fundraising. Uh, Alex is Senior Director of Gift Planning at Northwell Health Foundation in New Hyde Park, New York. Alex has worked in gift planning for 20 years at four nonprofit organizations. And Alex is a past board member and treasurer of the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners, where she serves as chair of its leadership institute. She is president emeritus of philanthropic giving group of Greater New York in New York City and has been an instructor for Plan planned giving certificate program at Malloy College. More importantly for us here in our topics here at The Nonprofit Coach is that her first book was Zen and the Art of Fundraising, Eight Pillars of Success, uh, that was published back in March of 2018. It was so successful, and Alex had so much more to share, that she then wrote the second book, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, Eight More Pillars of Success, uh, which was published in September of 2018. And of course, we covered both of those here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach, and you can find those very successful podcasts over at tedhart.com. Our topic here today is Alex's third book in the trilogy, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, The Pillars in practice, which was just published in March of 2019, is already a big success, which is not a surprise because uh, Alex, thank you for joining us here again on the nonprofit coach. You already had a following with the first two uh, Zen uh, books and our topic today is a trilogy of great advice that leads to solid success in fundraising. Alex Proby, welcome back here to the nonprofit coach.
3: Oh, Ted, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And before I forget to say it, congratulations to all the people who have the new CFRE. Um, That's wonderful. It's always nice to continue education, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And, and uh, since you mentioned that, uh, we'll mention again that the nonprofit coach is very supportive of CFRE and believe that it is a mark of distinction to stand voluntarily for exam um, and to stand uh, with your peers in support of uh, professional fundraising techniques and tactics. Um, and so we do encourage everyone who can qualify. Uh, to set for the CFRE exam to go to CFRE.org and certainly to obtain your certification. Um, so, Alex, um, third book, um, where I'd like to start is um, the first two books were highly successful and the podcast that you did here on the Nonprofit uh, Coach um, have been listened to by hundreds of people um, since you were on uh, the show. So very clearly some of the most successful podcasts that we have had in the last year. Uh, the topic is resonating, the interest in success, but let's go back to the roots here. Um, why Zen and the Art of Fundraising? What is it about this, this concept of, of calm, of peace, of organization, uh, this concept of Zen that drives us towards these pillars of success?
3: You know, that's a great question. And I have to continuously ask myself that, Ted, because I am I have a type A personality. I'm trained as an attorney. I started my career as an estate planning attorney before becoming a full-time gift planner. And so I, I have some technical expertise. I know about the tax laws. I, I'm trained in that area. I can think very strategically. I put together plans that have some complex parts to them. And as I, I sat there last year with two decades of experience I thought what is this what truly makes me successful as a fundraiser or to ask the question a different way what makes fundraisers successful and if you're successful that means you're enjoying it and if you're enjoying it that means you want to keep doing it and we want to keep doing it to fulfill our charity's missions right so I kind of challenged myself after two decades. I, I thought it was time to kind of reset and figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my career and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I, I, I thought about the traits that were most successful, and I probably wrote them down on the back of a napkin, like all good books and, and theorems and things start over time. I, I probably jotted a couple down, and I came up with the first eight, which I thought were it. And so that was the book that Stephen Mill at Charity Channel kindly published, saying it was new. No one had thought about it from that point of view, what makes you successful. And then as I started writing that book, I realized, gosh, there were a couple more traits. I missed a few, so I had a second book with eight more pillars of success. And, and then I was challenged by a couple colleagues, um, including Ron Brown, who's a very respected fundraiser and gift planner um, in the New York City metropolitan area. And he said to me, yeah, yeah, your traits and pillars are wonderful, Alex. But how can you show us how these really work in practice, and not just in the easy cases, but in the difficult cases? Like, how do these pillars help us resolve situations and become successful?
0: Right.
1: Well, and and, and we want, and we're going to get into the 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 pillars uh, in uh, in practice. Uh, but be, before we actually, you know, get to the 16 pillars and, and what they mean and, and, and how they help organize your approach and, and the success that you can have, I, I'm, I'm very curious, and I'm sure that my listeners are as well, In you know, the definition of Zen is a feeling of peacefulness, of relaxation, um, you know, to have a Zen experience. Um But it also emphasizes, and I think this is, you know, for me where the pillars come in, is that you're able – let me back up one step further and say that you know, I don't think a lot of fundraisers in sort of the, the manic throes of fundraising necessarily see their day-to-day activities as peaceful and relaxing. It's, you know, it's not, you know, like going to a country club every time that you go to work. It's, I don't think that's how most people view it. But, you know, Zen emphasizes rigorous self-control um, and, and insight into the nature of things and people and an expression of that. In your daily life, and that's what I see in the in the pillars is that by by you know in in the review of the pillars and the utilization and the understanding of the pillars that you bring Zen to your fundraising success by learning how to emphasize self-control and insight and that personal expression of that in a day-to-day life, and that that's what will ultimately bring success is that you know when you are peaceful and in control and, and, and you're able to see things as they really are as opposed to you know maybe the wishful thinking of the way you'd like them to be, um, that actually attracts more success to you. So that's why I wanted to sort of take a step back to the, the origins and genesis of, you know before there were pillars, there was the Zen of, of, uh, of fundraising. And, and I wanted to explore that before we get into, you know, so the Zen and the art of fundraising that then gets uh, uh, sort of accentuated in the 16 pillars. Can, can we go there in terms of why? Because you could have named it anything. But why <laughs> why this notion of Zen um, in, in accentuating these 16 pillars? Sure. So,
3: so fundraisers that have the end of a uh, fiscal year coming up at the end of this month, in in a mere 13 days or at the end of this calendar year or whenever. No, it doesn't seem like a very Zen time. It's sort of the opposite of Zen, which is, I think your word, Ted, was frenzied. Um, What I I wanted to bring, I mean, I I studied the martial arts. I studied Shotokan karate. I, I learned and taught myself how to meditate. And I realized that amidst all the chaos, we need to find our zone. Someone said to me, so by Zen, do you mean finding your zone? Well, sure, that's one way that each person can define it because how I define Zen isn't necessarily, Ted, how you or all the rest of the fundraisers listening would define Zen. But but it's one of those things where you know it when you're in it. So you know when you got off the phone with a donor or maybe through the use of one of the pillars, you even know before you're about to make that call that you're ready. You've done everything to prepare you've taken care of everything you need to do on your end and you're prepared to turn on all of those traits that make you successful at that moment when you take a couple deep breaths and you're ready to take an action or do something that's when you're in a zen moment and you can bring that quiet and focus and peace no matter what's going on around you and no matter what your goals are and how far you are along no matter what you can get yourself to that point point. and i think it's kind of a reset point do you want to think of it?
1: Well, I think it's important to, to learn those skills because, you know, if you're anxious and, and you're nervous uh, in front of a donor or in your action with, uh, with a donor, they're going to pick up on that and, that. and that's not going to make them confident and comfortable in their interaction with you. So uh, these really are sort of, you know, where it all begins is learning these skills. But let's, let's go to your, your approach it, to this. I think we all can agree that it's important to get there, but how do you get there? And can you, um, you know, sort of succinctly review the 16 pillars um, for us um, in, that's incorporated in the first two books? Because what we really do want to spend time on today um, is you know, some of these real-life, in-practice, ways that we can help those folks that are you know maybe they have you know uh you know an october uh, fiscal year end maybe they have a december fiscal year end maybe they're already planning uh for their new fiscal year um and each of those moments no matter what the time frame is there's a time frame and time deadlines can make people frantic
3: oh absolutely and i'm not exempt from that and i don't think anyone in the fundraising world is as a matter of fact you know although we tell ourselves year after year we're not going to get frenzied and upset and worried and we're going to start things earlier in the year and we, we all try to do this and we actually do it, but we still end up getting to that point where you have to kind of take three deep breaths and I'm going to, I'm going to skip over that today, but, but that's a skill we talked about in the first two podcasts and that I've outlined in all three of my books and you just need to put yourself in the moment and that's really where I started with the first the very first pillar that I described is being in the moment. And being in the moment means that you're putting yourself right there with your, let's say, your donor, who you spend very little actual time with because we spend a lot of time strategizing and thinking and writing letters. But you need to be in the moment right there, free of distractions, when you're focusing on your donors or working with a new prospect. And so that really became pillar number one. And and I've had people joke that they can't even get to the other 15 pillars because they're still working on that one.
1: And that's very important. That kind of resets the stage. Mm -hmm. So pillar number one, um, you can't move beyond until you are able to focus there.
3: Exactly, so if you think about it, although the pillars aren't necessarily in any particular order of importance, unless you're in the moment, the rest of the pillars aren't gonna be as effective. So pillar number two is listening. If you're there with a donor and you're really not in the moment and you're thinking about what you're making for dinner or what's going on with your kids or your parents or your boyfriend or your spouse or what's happening in the world today or what's going on on Facebook because you noticed your little app has a little number next to it of things you have to catch up with, if you're doing all that, you're not really listening. And listening, as we know, is the key to good communication and communication is the key to building good relationships and fundraising is about relationships it's not about a transaction or a gift it's more about a
1: relationship so pillar number 2 is listening so but there's lots of different kinds of listening there you know there there's active listening there but i think a lot of people listen just to think of what they're going to say next which means that they're not actually fully listening so how how do you recommend that or do you have any tips on how to remember to slow down find that piece and actually listen to what's being said what's the payoff to actually listening and not just waiting for the next free space for you to say what you came to say
3: right it's a matter of of putting the person you're speaking with putting their agenda first and it's maybe repeating back what the person said to you. So you just said, you know, how, what, there are different types of listening. And how do I know which one is going to put me in the moment so I'm really focusing? You know, when you're with a donor in person, which seems to be kind of less and less these days because we have so many other ways to interact. We give the donor our attention. We give the donor our eye contact. We might say, that's an interesting story you just told, and it reminds me of another story. So you want to make sure that they know that you're with them and that you're not distracted. I always say that these pillars are something that you should be able to look in the mirror and see yourself throwing this pillar off to your donor, or put yourself in your donor shoes and look at this fundraiser is this fundraiser listening to me as a donor I'm I'm going to know if the fundraisers listening to me because we're in the moment together and we're on the same topic and my fundraiser doesn't keep changing the topic or saying yeah 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 that's nice but let's get talking about the gift I came to ask you let's get
1: back to me let's let's get back to me and and what I what I want to talk about
3: right it's putting the donors donors agenda first
1: that's That's right that's right okay so number three.
3: Number three is compassion, um, particularly those in the healthcare field. I, I think we need a lot of compassion with what we do and the stories we hear. You know, donors have reasons why they want to support our mission. Some of those reasons are fantastic. I got a scholarship fund, so now I want to set a scholarship fund up, so I call the, the charity where I want to do that. Maybe it's my alma mater, and I do that. That's all, that's all good news. Maybe, though, that the donor's spouse had a heart attack and needed some help and support, and now the donor's calling because it was a bad thing that first prompted, but, but now they want to do something good with it. The end result was good, or maybe not. Maybe the end result wasn't as good as they think it could be. So it's being able to show your compassion. And, again, part of being compassionate is quieting your mind and showing the person that you're listening to them. So that's mm-hmm.
1: number three, compassion. Actively showing that, that, uh, that, that you're listening. So compassion – is part of active listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Number 4. So these are kind of building
3: on each other, but yeah. So That's number right, 4 right. Number 4 is curiosity and you know this is one that you could fit in anywhere but certainly I think we fundraisers are very curious. I mean the number one question we ask and hopefully should ask is why. You know why did you make this gift? Why have you given to our organization for 17 years? Maybe even after we establish a relationship, why do you give $100 every year? Or why do you always write out a check? Are you aware that there are other ways of giving? Or I call someone who hasn't given for a while and I say, how are you? And by the way, what's going on in your life? I've noticed that you're, that you're not giving. Why are you not giving? So, so it, it, it's continuing to ask why. It's continuing to be curious. And it's continuing to move the relationship on. And, of course, when you ask the questions, then you need to revert back to that pillar of listening that we already spoke about so that you can incorporate their answers into wherever you want to
1: take the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think curiosity is, is also, uh, I think, one of the, the hallmarks of a good fundraiser uh, is someone who is genuinely interested in people. Uh, because everybody has a story and everybody actually Would like to tell their story some people are more shy than others but but every everybody would like to share who they are Um, but they may not be forceful in doing that so creating an environment where you're showing true interest and curiosity and what is your story what what brought you to where you are how would you want to express your philanthropy Um, which a lot of fundraisers miss that point because they're looking at their own budgets and they're looking at their own fiscal years and they're, they're looking at, you know, I'm sitting in front of a, of a check. You know, I'm looking in front of a wire transfer. Um, and how big can that be and when, how quickly can I get it? Um, and those are two very, very different approaches. Um, and I think the curiosity and understanding of the person sitting in front of you and actually learning who they are will ultimately raise more money uh, because they're going to see that as far more genuine.
3: Absolutely, and being genuine is key. And, you know, I think curiosity, if you want to revert back to that first pillar we talked about, being in the moment, curiosity really puts you in the moment because as soon as you ask a question, you put yourself in the pause mode and you turn on your active listening, and now you want to hear the other person's story. I've noticed in the past maybe two years how the importance of storytelling has come up, not only in some fundraisers' actual titles, but in how important it is. What we want to do is we want to have the donors express their support of our missions through their stories. And the only way you're going to get that story out of them is to be curious and to ask.
1: My listeners know that I serve as President and CEO of CAF American uh, International Donor Advised Funds, uh, and one of the funds that we're currently administering is uh, for a woman who left uh, legacy uh, to support philanthropy uh, in uh, Bulgaria, in a small village um, outside of Sofia. And one of the things that we have done is actually commissioned um, a journalist to research and write her life story Um, mainly because we believe that her life story will help guide us in appropriately administering the fund that she has left by understanding who she is and where she came from uh, more than we might just from the documents that she left for us uh, with, uh, with the legacy. So again, that life story, whether it's from someone who has passed and you're understanding it more in depth, or if you're sitting in front of them and they're telling you the story themselves, Um, There are lots of hidden clues um, that may not even be evident to the philanthropist that can become extremely important to the gift.
3: Absolutely, and you, you brought out a really good point, Ted, because curiosity is also something that our donors have about what other donors are doing. Or, you know, why did this person give? They're going to extract that story. That's why you have someone who's trying to extract those details to be able to more completely tell her story. But, you know, I think one of the things that we do in in marketing when we do it well, the reason we want to tell these stories is because we know people are genuinely curious, human beings and, and animals, but human beings are generally very curious, and they like to know what others are doing and why they did it. And if they can see themselves in those stories, which is part of what we want to do, then that's all the better because they can see themselves
1: making gifts as well. Mm -hmm. Number five is humility, uh, which I, you know, I think you've got to have that uh, to really show curiosity in someone else because if, you know, if you're so self-centered that it's all about you and your work and what a great fundraiser you are, uh, even what a great organization you represent, you're, You're not back to number one in the moment. You're not listening. You're not showing compassion. Um, So talk to us a little bit more about humility and why is that number five?
3: So picture yourself in the role of the donor or the prospect and your fundraiser comes to visit you and your fundraiser tells you how much the fundraiser has raised, how important the donor's gift is because it will help the fundraiser with the totals, where the fundraiser went to school, what the fundraiser's kids are doing. And while I know many donors who I sit across want to know this stuff because you're building a relationship, you want to know about the other person, I think when I'm in the role of a donor, what I want to see is someone who comes to me and is willing to say, will you help? And those three words, will you help, have to come from humble beginnings. And it doesn't mean you don't have pride in your job. I want to make sure I make this point. You can be humble when you're in front of a donor and grateful for what they're going to do, but still have great pride in being a fundraiser.
1: That's right, that's right, that's right. So, uh, patience, you know, so, you know, again, you say these build on each other. Um, why, why might patience be a great quality to bring uh, to the fundraising table?
3: I call it the golden rule of fundraising, and especially for gift planners. You know, the, the golden rule of real estate is location, location, location. The golden rule of fundraising is many times patience, patience, patience. I mean, not too many of us can pick up the phone today, call a donor, ask for $100,000, and have the donor say yes, hang up the phone, and wire in $100,000. Right? right? If it were, right. everyone would want to be a fundraiser. There would be no, no skill or no, no career in doing that if you could just always do that. So we often have to wait. And a hallmark of patience is putting someone else's goals and needs ahead of our own. So, again, that fiscal year is coming or the end of the calendar year is coming, and there are certain donors who I hope commit to us and make their gifts before the end of the year. Maybe I've already been patient with them. The great thing about patience, Ted, is that patience, I do believe, is a renewable resource. So you, you might you might have to get through the fiscal year. You might start to lose your patience with certain people or with certain processes. It's renewable. You tend to find more, and you tend to find them for the donors that want to stick with you. Again, you need to be curious. As you're being patient, you need to ask why. So if a donor says, I can't make the gift this year, but maybe next year, maybe an appropriate oh. follow-up question would be, can I ask what's going on and say if that's your timeline? I'm happy to be patient and and wait with you till it's a better time for you to do this. Can I ask what's going on? And, you know what what what's going on in your life right now? So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it. I mean that golden rule of patience applies all the time. Sometimes that might be the only pillar that we have to rely on in a particular tough day.
1: Well, and I think one of the things that's important for fundraisers to understand is that. Uh, donors give on their timetable, not yours, uh, the, the, the complete artificial uh, uh, approach to, you know, the campaign runs for three months and we must have your gift by the end of that campaign, you know, in some ways organizes the thinking of donors, but in many ways is so completely arbitrary. Um, as to be a meaningless, particularly to your largest donors who have been there before, who have you know know that there's going to be another campaign, that this you know this deadline is not the last opportunity, and I you know I don't have to give before midnight uh, tonight. Um, so yeah, I think patience you know comes into sometimes you're answering questions over and over again, and sometimes donors are thinking about it and go away and come back and forget that they were thinking about it because you're not the number one topic in in your in their life. And showing patience and, and not sort of a short temper um, when it comes to, you, you know, the sense that you're not giving my organization the time that they're due. Well, in fact, they're not due anything and the money is not owed to you. So I think patience, you know, is, is a good thing measure of, uh, of a good fundraiser. Someone who is really impatient, um, I think, uh, is not likely to find great success in fundraising.
3: So, and you certainly don't want the donor to ever feel your impatience. I mean, the, you, you right. can certainly ask why. You can certainly talk about the timeline. I think sometimes we create our own problems, and, and we create our own problems when it comes to not being patient. We set a timeline that we think is the right timeline for a particular gift. Okay. And maybe it's based on years of experience or something that we've read or, you know, a particular donor with the gift they made in the past. We set a timeline, and then the donor, gosh darn it, the donor changes the timeline because the timeline should really be the donors. And so patience is something, that's, it's something that you, you kind of need to have this pillar, whether you like it or not but it's something that you can embrace and just realize, like you said, Ted, it, it, we have our timelines and the donors have theirs. And just because donor number one is my top donor doesn't mean my organization is their top charity or that, or that they aren't having health or other issues that prevents them from really focusing on it. That's why patients
1: Exactly, number seven is a sense of humor, why?
3: <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've seen over the past 10 or 15 years that a very common um, item in a job description is a sense of humor. And so I started thinking about it the first time I saw it a number of years ago and then I questioned myself, do I have a sense of humor and does that come out? First of all, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. We're all human, we all make mistakes It's okay to make them and recognize them and then try to learn from them and do better. You need to have a sense of humor with your donors too. And some of them are very serious. They call you, they just want what the tax rate would be or what their annuity rate would be or what their recognition would be for this particular gift. They're not really interested in all the rest of the stuff. And, you know, that's where sometimes the sense of humor wins. I mean, if all else fails and the big donor that you needed says no, and you've and you just you've waited and waited, you've listened, you've been curious, you're in the moment, you've done everything you could do, and nothing else helps, sometimes the last thing you can rely on is your sense of humor. Find a way to make a joke about it. Find a way to put the smile back on your face because people can hear smiles. When you actually smile, people can hear them through the phone. They don't have to see you. So I'm smiling now, and I hope everyone can hear it. It's part of being positive. If I'm a donor, I want to interact with a positive fundraiser, and part of that is having a sense of humor.
1: Right, And well, it, it also, you know, it, as you said, it sends a signal you know of, of you know of acceptance of you know we, if you have a sense of humor and and you're enjoying the, the privilege of supporting a campaign, well, is the fundraiser also enjoying your company as someone who has chosen to be a philanthropist and to and to to make a difference. So um, so I agree, I think having a sense of humor, but also a sense of humor with, understanding, you know, sense of humor very much goes with patience. Of You know, understanding that, you know, everything is not as it seems and and the outcome and answer may be better than it seems today. Um, You know, have the patience and the sense of humor to the messaging from the donor because they may be having a bad day or, as you said, there may be something going on in their life at this moment that doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to give. It's just that this is not the time uh, for them to have that that conversation. Now, number eight is being a mentor, and that seems sort of in a very different direction, um, or is this mentoring the donor or mentoring colleagues?
3: Mm-hmm. So or both. it can be any of the above. The way this fits in, although at first glance it does seem that it's a little bit different from the other traits, have to do with the benefits of being a mentor. So mo- most mentors in a mentor-mentee relationship will tell you, in all honesty, looking you straight in the eye, that they feel that they got more out of the relationship than their mentee. The mentor did, even though the mentor was in this relationship in the first place to help someone else. So, again, this is one of those traits where, If you know something and you can explain it to someone else, let's take a colleague, for example, then you know the next time you have to face this scenario with a real donor or a prospect, you've just built up your confidence, and it makes you a far better person with prospects and donors because you took the time to help someone else with whatever the issue was. That's how it applies here.
1: Absolutely. We're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, we're going to quickly review... The second book, um, the second eight pillars, making up the 16 pillars of Zen and the art of fundraising. Uh, And then, as promised, which is really the payoff for today's uh, podcast, is those pillars in practice. And we will be
0: right back. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list
1: for Thursday's gig.
0: So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at TedHeart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart.
1: And we are here with Alex Brovy, Senior Director of Gift Planning at Northwell Health Foundation in New Hyde Park, New York, and the author... Of her third book, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, The Pillars uh, in Practice. As promised before the break, we're going to jump right into pillar number nine, which is passion and why.
3: Yes, and I hate to speed through passion, but we're going to make it just as good as we can so we can get to those examples. Passion is one of those things that's driving your donors. Passion is a renewable resource you should have your own passion for your charitable organization. If you don't have it when you first start because you took a job, you can find it and you find it in the stories that your donors tell and share with you, which is what sparks their passion for the charitable cause.
1: And number 10 is honesty.
3: It is. so. Again, if you put yourself on the other side of the table and you were your donor or your prospect, would you not want to deal with a fundraiser who's honest? So if something happens, if money needs to be put to a new use, if there's a change in whatever you've discussed with a donor or a prospect, you need to be honest and tell it to them straight. Don't try to walk around. Donors and prospects can see right through that, and being dishonest is an absolute way to ruin a relationship and stop the giving.
1: Number 11 is courage.
3: So I think fundraisers need to be courageous. This kind of goes along with courage, the two Cs. We need to be courageous because we need to ask people for a gift. But I always caution myself, I'm not really asking someone for money. I'm asking someone to fulfill the mission. They do that through money, but money is part of it. Because after the money comes, in whatever form it takes, now, later, stock, a house, a check, a credit card gift, a text of $10, whatever form it takes, we want to make sure that we can tie that back into
1: the charitable mission. And sometimes after you've made that very courageous ask, uh, you need number 12, resilience.
3: Absolutely. Sometimes the answer to an ask is no. And that causes us to step back and take a moment and think about it. Again, to listen, to be curious, to ask why. Resilience is the ability to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and move on. And we need to do that as fundraisers because we aren't always going to get a yes to our ask. Number
1: 13, acceptance.
3: Yeah. So, Ted, you mentioned acceptance a little while ago. Sometimes we just have to accept our donors when they give us a no or accept them when they give us something less or accept them when they need more time or accept them when they ask a lot of questions. Sometimes some donors over a period of months or weeks will ask you the same question over and over. We need to accept them for where they are, accept their gifts when they give them, thank them, and be able to move on and continue to hone that
1: relationship with them. Number 14, gratitude.
3: Yeah, I was trying very carefully not to touch upon gratitude. Some might say gratitude should be the number one pillar, and it can. If that's your number one pillar, that's kind of where it all starts, right? It starts with being thankful to a donor for making that first gift. And don't forget to go back with your donors who have been making gifts for years and maybe ask them the question in a wonderful stewardship visit, do you remember why you made your first gift? What touched you about the mission? And then continue to thank them, not just for the first gift, but for all the gifts that they've made and that they will continue to make.
1: And I think, you know, gratitude, uh, another way to show gratitude within your organization, which I think is often missed, is sharing stories of gratitude with staff members and board members who sometimes get so close to the forest they forget the mission, they forget, you know, all of the wonderful stories because they're focused on budget and they're focused on outcomes uh, and maybe some problems that need to be solved. So I think gratitude is something that can be – spread around and used in a lot of different ways and generally makes everyone better for it. Number 15 is positivity.
3: Positivity. So, again, think of yourself sitting across from a fundraiser.
1: Do you want to sit
3: across from someone who's nervous, lacks self-confidence, doesn't seem to be listening to you, doesn't want to accept your answer when you say no because they keep asking you, well, why not? Well, how about a lesser amount? Well, whatever. You want to sit across from a positive, can-do type of fundraiser. Whatever the issue is, if it's a good issue, you've been there with them, the rising tide. If it's an issue where they need help or you need to stand by them while they get over a hurdle, a health issue, something else that happened where they can't make a gift, be that positive person. I mentioned smiling earlier. Studies have shown that just putting a smile on your face, just the being able to do that physically does things in your brain with your endorphins and tends to make you a little bit happier. It doesn't mean like a rictus grin. It means a true smile. Be a positive person, be a positive force at your
1: organization. And boy, something that definitely ties us right back to that concept of Zen uh, is number 16, intuition.
3: Yep, so we started with being in the moment, and we ended with intuition. And again, they're not in any particular order necessarily, but intuition is sometimes that that little voice or that part in your brain that's telling you to do something or not to do something. And if it ever comes in very strong, you need to listen to it. The best example I can give, and it's not just in my own case, I've heard this, I've spoken at a couple places around the country, and inevitably someone in the audience raises their hand and says, you know, I had a really strong feeling I should pick up the phone and call so-and-so, and and I did, and guess what happened. And then they proceed to tell a story about how something happened with the person and the call came at the right time. So you need to follow your intuition. It also works when... You know, you you feel like you're being forced to do, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, this, and your brain is telling you, no, it's absolutely not the right time. Listen to your brain, try to figure out what it's telling you, and then try to move on accordingly.
1: Mm -hmm. So now, as we promised, you know, we've reviewed all 16 pillars. Uh, and I want to remind our listeners um, some of the things that we shared in the first two podcasts that, again, uh, are available at tedhart.com is that you, you can buy either book or both books. You can pick up the pillars and try to you know, implement all 16 or just eight, or you can pick up one at a time. They, they are refreshing uh, to remind you of all of the various things that can help organize Uh, your success in fundraising, and bring that sense of order and peace uh, to the work that you're doing. But now Alex has promised, because she's written this third book, um, to give us some very concrete examples of how you can put these pillars in practice. And so when you do that, uh, Alex, you're not saying all 16 at the same time, but that there are combinations of these pillars that at any given time or different times, either in the year or in the relationship with the donor, can really help organize you and bring you towards a greater level of success. So bring us where you would like to go in terms of putting these pillars into practice.
3: Sure. So so what I did is, and I, I have I've included stories on each of these pillars independently in the first two books. In the third book, I actually have stories that I try to um, pick real life stories that have happened to me I might have changed names or facts a little bit but and then I tried to really apply these pillars to see how could I successfully navigate these situations so the first scenario and I, I picked three or four scenarios depending on time the first scenario in, involves the person who I called Nancy and and I posed the question at the beginning of it you know is a donor's good news always good news for you and the facts are something like the following. Um, let's say Nancy has been an annual donor at your organization for five years. Um, by the way, she may also be an annual donor at other organizations. We recognize that it fundraise, as fundraisers, our donors give in a variety of places. Um, you're, you're planning to meet with her to discuss the use of her gifts over the years. And let's say you're in a campaign. So you want to talk to her about the campaign. You want to have the initial conversation. And you decide, um, because your metrics require you to ask for a certain number of gifts of a certain number of people, that Nancy's been a donor. You're in a campaign. You're going to write up a solicitation based on what she's given or what you think she can give research You've done your due diligence and all of that. So, you, you bring a proposal. She agrees to meet with you. You meet at a restaurant. Um, you walk in. She's there. You have a nice greeting. You have small talk and you place your order. And then you take a deep breath because you're resetting and putting yourself in the moment and you're ready. You're ready to kind of turn the conversation at this point to potentially asking Nancy for another gift. And Nancy smiles and, and says to you, by the way, I have some great news to share with you, and, and that's why I agreed to meet with you today. I visited with my attorney, and I put your organization in my will. Now let's pause there. Um, for some people, like people who are gift planners, people who are required to ask for gifts and wills, and people who appreciate the fact that some of our donors put us in their wills, we're really happy about this. news. This is This is right. really good news. Nancy's right. It's great news. However, another part of me is the fundraiser sitting there with a solicitation in my hand, ready to ask Nancy to do something, and I might be thinking, oh, no, she's going to give us money later, and now she's not going to give me anything now, and now I'm not going to make my goals, and how could Nancy do this to me? Which is a very self-centered, self-focused approach and gets us far away from those pillars that make us successful fundraisers. So, you know, we, we know there's a couple obvious pillars here, Ted, right? Gratitude. Gratitude's the first one. Nancy just shared with you that she made a gift. And for those who aren't right. aware, gifts and wills are, are multiples on average of gifts of what people can give during their lifetime. This might be a very big gift. And without even getting into asking her yet how big the gift is, um, just turn to her or and say term, oh, thank you.
1: Or the terms? right?
3: Right. I mean, we'd like to eventually know all that stuff. And if we do have a good relationship with her, we should feel comfortable starting to ask her some of those questions. doesn't even have to be today during the meal. But you can say to her, Nancy, that's great. And then the pillar of curiosity, what made you decide to do that? You know, why did you make this gift? This is fantastic. And And then the pillar of listening comes in. Listen to why she did it. She's not alone in putting your organization in your will. There's probably tons of other people out there who've done the same thing. So here's a real live person in front of you. Be in the moment with her, express appreciation, And listen to her. This is not a case where you need to be patient, yet we'll get to the point of why you thought you were coming to the meeting. This is just a point of appreciating that based on some of those pillars. Now, the harder part comes in your brain where you're sitting there with a solicitation wondering, what should I do? So here's your pillar, like acceptance, uh, the pillar of courage, uh, the pillar of Being in the moment again, celebrating her future gift that she's letting you know about now, all come into play. Nancy, can can you tell me more about the gift? And is it? And maybe Nancy says something because you're listening. You're being an active listener. Something like, "Well, I always knew I wanted to do something this big, but I know I can't do it now during my lifetime. So I'm going to set this up in my will so that I can do X." and you're listening to her and you're paying attention and party is also thinking about this solicitation sitting next to you that you haven't given your, her, to her yet you can say Nancy this is a wonderful way you've made gifts in the past I want to tell you what we've done with those and fill you in and you're committing to make this gift in the future at some point in the future and it would be wonderful if, if together it doesn't have to be today we can talk about how to tie all those in together so we're talking about your giving and your legacy here at Northwell, or the United Way, or wherever the charity is that that the fundraiser is working at, and then yeah. and then it's being it's being you know suppose you decide you don't want to take the solicitation out because you want to listen to her and she just told you about a gift that's one decision maybe you let your intuition be your guide another decision yeah. might be you know I'm going to pull it out and dust it off and say I had no idea you were going to share this good news with me Nancy and I was thinking about the giving that you've done I want to fill you in on a couple things that are going on at the organization that I know you care about based on your past giving, and I brought you something to look over for us to talk about over the coming days or weeks as you have time. But don't let that take me away from saying to you, I am sincerely thankful for your future gift. Wow,
1: that's great. Yeah. Right, and, and what, what's happening there, which I, I think is you know part of what you're trying to help uh, Artful fundraisers focus on is having a real conversation. You know she's put something on the table. you do have something you'd like to discuss. you decide to do that or not using your your intuition, but also active listening to see if there is an opportunity to have a dialogue here after you've properly thanked her and shown your gratitude uh, for what she has just said and and is obviously foremost in her mind. I mean, she took the act of actually working with her attorney to make sure that you were evidenced in her uh, in her will. so all of that, I think, really points to learning how to have a conversation, structuring an appropriate conversation, so that it's a two-way conversation and not just transactional. I want this, you give me that, I say thank you.
3: That's exactly Alex? right, and, and okay. that's, yep, that's exactly right, and that's where those pillars can help you. The pillars that we went through one by one that's exactly where they can help you be successful If they turn it more to your donor who's in front of you rather than you.
1: And it sounds, sounds like your, your dog is enjoying the show and has lots <laughs> to add to conversation. He
2: told
3: me I should have mentioned a couple more pillars. I mean, we could go through all 16 for every single one of these, and we really could apply them, but I tried to pick and choose examples so that different pillars came to the forefront. And so, well, which we start- I appreciate.
1: Yeah. If Alex, if you don't mind, because we we only have about six minutes left, I was hoping that maybe uh, you could actually speak to, because I was just very curious about Chapter Nine in your new book, Art and uh, and the Art Then in the Art of Fundraising, the Pillars in Practice. This concept of do as I say, not as I do surviving inverse mentors. I, I thought that was very interesting to put in this book because, again, it, it looks to a different aspect of being successful in fundraising. Can you spend a couple of minutes and help us understand what surviving inverse mentors might be about?
3: Sure. I'd be happy to. So one thing that we all have, we talked about being a mentor, and we spent a little time on that pillar. And being a mentor means that you are sharing knowledge with someone and you're also gaining something in return. Now sometimes we're being mentors and sometimes we need to seek a mentor, right? So these are cases where you're seeking a mentor or maybe you're not, but someone comes into your presence, into your fundraising life. So take for example your boss or a colleague that you need to work with or perhaps someone who's on a committee. And this particular person is not displaying the pillars as you have learned them, or as you understand them, and so you're watching this person and you're thinking, these are not traits or skills that I believe would make me successful as a fundraiser. I have named that an inverse mentor. Because and actually, they're not if in
1: Alex Proby's book, they're not in Alex Proby's book, then they're not well, going to point to success in fundraising. <laughs>
3: Well, hopefully not, but you need to recognize that they're out there. These are the people that tell you to do
1: something when you shouldn't.
3: You were talking about, you know, say what you will or do as I say, not as I do. These are people that tell you to do something that your intuition and your heart tells you is not the right thing to do. Maybe you need to call someone the fourth time when you know it's really not the right thing to do that. Or maybe you're being told not to do something when you have a really
1: strong sense that you should do it. You need to, watch or to to do something unethical, uh, which is which is something that a lot of fundraisers will face is um, you know someone who wants to make something that is meant to look philanthropic is maybe not philanthropic, or their boss is pressuring them to accept a gift which perhaps is not in the best interest uh, of the donor. Um, so there, there's lots of ways that you might get pressured by somebody who is. You know, purporting themselves to be an expert in fundraising, even may say, "Well, we've done this many times, but you're the professional who is in charge of this, of uh, creating that uh, that fundraising success." And understanding that that mentor may not be the person who's going to guide you best.
3: Right, and it doesn't mean that you can't learn from them and that you can't recognize that they're there. Like I said. We can refrain from talking about unethical cases or bad situations, or people can just take that advice to we'll just stay away from them. Sometimes we can't, so we need to learn from them. And most of the time, this doesn't come from our donors or prospects. It comes from within our organization. And so that's where these pillars can also help you with success, is not just when you're in your engagement with donors and prospects, but in your professional practice with the people that you have to work with with advisors you have to work with with some an attorney who might ask you which they shouldn't it's malpractice but they ask you to backdate a document all of these uh, things can happen. These are right. where you can rely on your pillars
1: that's right that's right alex we only have about three minutes left um can you the topic here is the trilogy of great advice can you sort of pull all this uh together we've covered a lot of territory Three books, 16 Pillars for Success. Can you wrap this together for us and summarize a trilogy of great advice that leads to solid success in fundraising? Sure, I would be happy to.
3: I was trying to figure out what do all these pillars really demonstrate? Of course, they each have their own usefulness and their own definition and their own application. You can divide them out and go through them each as I've done in the first two books. But what all the pillars together add up to is that they show that you respect the donor and that you respect yourself and that you are proud and respectful as a fundraiser. The pillars also don't only apply in your fundraising world. They apply when you're in a traffic jam, when you're at the grocery store, when you're a parent, when you're in a relationship. They apply in a lot of areas. So the pillars are something that help you not only be successful as a fundraiser, but successful in life. The only other point I would reiterate, because I touched upon it earlier, is the concept of a mirror. Always look at yourself in the mirror and think, am I demonstrate, Am I being the best person or the best fundraiser that I could be? Am I showing the donor my true side? Am, am I genuine and honest? And, again, it comes down to showing a donor respect. I think a lot that has been lost in this world and a lot of what's wrong has to do with the lack of respect. And it starts for your, with yourself. So if you put these pillars into practice and see where you fall on them, I included a chart in book three where you can kind of go through and figure out, do I, I got this or I'm working on it or boy, that's that I got to put on my to do list and kind of hone that one a little bit better. If you are, if you are, you give yourself an A plus on all of these pillars, then you, by definition, you're going to be a successful fundraiser and you're going to be successful
1: in your life. Alex Brovey, Senior Director, Gift Planning at Northwell Health Foundation and author of the trilogy, uh, Zen and the Art of Fundraising. Please share with our listeners how they can reach you. Sure.
3: So I'm available on LinkedIn at Alexandra Brovey. I have a site on Facebook called Zen Pillars. I'm available in my professional capacity at Northwell Health on the website. And I'm also, I have a website and an AOL address alexbrove at aol.com I welcome any comments or feedback
1: terrific thank you for being our guest here today on the Nonprofit Coach thanks so much
0: you've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach